Hi everyone, my name's Lucas and this is Sports Stories SS15s. My guest is Floyd Stedman, you might have heard of him if you're interested in rugby. He's just released a book called A Week, One Summer and he's a very interesting person to talk to, so I'll introduce you to Floyd now. Hi Floyd. Hi Lucas, Uh, how are you? And and for your your audience, for the audience sake, I played, Lucas's dad and I were at school together and we played (laughs) rugby together. Yes, they did, they did. So if you don't know Floyd, you might, if you're interested in rugby, you'll know that he's played for Saracens, um, which is very high level. So Floyd, tell us a bit about you, your story, playing for Saracens and what that was like back, back in the day. Yeah, so let me give you a bit of background. And thanks for that, Lucas. So I've been lucky enough. I played for Saracens for 10 seasons from 1980 to 1990. I was captain of Saracens for four seasons. Actually, it was three and a half seasons. Um, I'm a vice president of Saracens and I'm only one of 14 that they've um, inducted into their Hall of Fame. So huge honour. Um, but you have to remember that I was playing rugby, top level rugby yeah. for Saracens in the days when we were theoretically amateur. So rugby only went professional in 1995. And I was playing from 1980s to 1990s. So we also had our day jobs. You know, there were yeah. bankers and doctors and I was a teacher, I was a young PE teacher. So you'd spend your, your days working like everybody else. And then most evenings you'll go and train. And it was hard, serious yeah. training as well. Because at, at that level, we were, we were semi-pro. We were elite sportsmen, really yeah. training hard and playing hard and traveling the world. But also we had our day jobs. So it was very busy, like, at the time. You had a, you had a lot going on. Um, did you find it... So you, did you get... If you're a semi-pro, you would have got paid a bit then, I'm guessing, every game or... So, so yeah. theoretically, remember, rugby was fully amateur till 1995. So officially, right. no one got oh, paid. Oh, OK, OK. Officially. Unofficially, unofficially, <laughs> um, your travel expenses were inflated. OK. Um, some of the lucky guys might have been given cars. You know, if you were playing for a club like Harlequins or was, um, yeah. they found jobs in the city for you, they found flats for you. Um, so from my point of view, of course, I wasn't paid because we were amateurs, but mm-hmm. the level that we trained and were playing to, um, financially, it was worth our while, let's put it that way. Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. And um, just on that then, so obviously, rugby wasn't a professional sport at the time, but obviously sports like football and things like that, they were all getting paid. What When you were younger and you were I'm, I'm guessing you went through academy um stages and stuff like that or so we see so that's interesting Lucas because back in the day we didn't have the setup the football the professional footballers yeah. they've always had their academies yeah, yeah, of course, so yeah. as a young as a young PE teacher I had a, a, an outstanding sportsman in my first school mm-hmm. Edgeworth school this young man uh, played football for England under 15 to England whatever the England school boys Mm. He played rugby for England on the 15s because back in the early 1980s, England was under 15, not under 16. And he was a junior international athlete. This boy was a supreme sportsman. Mm. He went to football because obviously that's where the money and the glory was. Yeah. So football had this system. Rugby didn't have the system. So for people like me going through the ranks, one of the routes was you play school. And while you're at school, if you're lucky, you're playing county, division. And if you're really lucky for your England schoolboys, you then go off to study university. And that was the stepping stone. So either it was, it was Oxford and Cambridge, yeah. which has always had that, you know, that, that snootiness about them. I went to one of the top um, sports colleges. People remember Loughborough because Loughborough is an outstanding college. Yeah. 
back in the day, on a par with Loughborough, you had Barrow Road, where mm -hmm. I went. You had one in Cardiff called um, Cardiff College, which is one of the universities now. Uh, you had Marjon, which is now a university. There was one where you are in Leeds, which is a big sports university. Yeah. There was one in Scotland, Jordan Hill. So you had half a dozen of what we call the, the top sports colleges in the country. Yeah. And if you were a rugby player, you went through this college for three or four years. You then went off to your club. So for me, it was school, college. Um, and while I was playing for the college, I played for English colleges and British colleges, English students. Mm. And then um, and when I left college, I could choose between Harlequins, Wasps and Saracens. And you chose I went, Saracens. I went to Saracens for two reasons. I looked at where was I going to get into the first team easiest. Yeah. Saracens was my best opportunity to but also being a black guy playing scrum half, and you have mm. to remember this is the days where black guys did not play scrum half. You know, yeah. they were they were the wingers and centres. You know, Jerry Gusco, Chris Oti, mm. Andy Harriman, or they yeah. were the big forwards, Steve Ajoma, Victor Blue, but they were never ever the scrum half. And I was playing scrum half, and I knew that if I was at Wasps or Harlequins, that would have been held against me. Mm. That's, that it's, in, it's interesting you say that because even now, like. The, do you know Paolo Adogo? I'm sure you know who that is. Played, I do, played, I do, yeah, yeah. He did an interview very recently with Rugby Pass. I saw, I, I, saw, I, saw, I saw And he, there's not a single black scrum half in the Premiership even now. So, so here, here's, the, here's the question for you, Lucas. Yeah. I know you're interviewing me, but this is your question. Since I started playing senior rugby in 1980, mm. I want you to name me another, apart from me, another black English scrum half at the top end of the game. I can't. I don't you know, think of one because I asked Jason Leonard. So Jason Leonard, yeah, president of the yeah. RFU. We played rugby together. He's a good friend of yeah. mine. I asked him. He couldn't give me one. No. Mark Evans, chief executive of Harlequins, top man in rugby. He couldn't give me one. I am the only English black scrum half in the last forty years. That is sad. It's very sad. You know, it's for people like sad. you, you need to see people like me at the top end. Mm, exactly. Well, I play scrum half. I know. And I, all I can really relate to, I look at players like Will Genio, who plays in Australia. Yeah. Um, Aaron Smith's not really black, but he's a minority in his own yeah. right. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. these are the players that I can kind of look at and go, bit like them, bit like them. But no one in, no one in the Premiership, no one in England apart from you. Um, and so why, so why, is, that, why is that, why is that, Lucas? Why is why is that then? It's interesting. I I don't I. I think so. In, in at my uni, we do. We've been studying um, some in the race section. It's more about how um, minorities are put across in the media and stuff like that, and also about how they're filtered into positions and into different sports. And you see, generally speaking, the stereotypes that you get with um, black people in general are that they're fast, they're strong, they're athletic. And in sports like rugby, those attributes are kind of put towards wingers and centres and all these fast and powerful players. And they don't really, from like even me, myself, as a scrum half now, like when I first started playing rugby, I was playing on the centres and in the wing because I was quick. I was generally quite quick. I have to say I've lost a bit of that now, but I, am, I was quite quick back then. So that's where I played. And then as I got a bit older is where I kind of started to move into the like the more controlling positions, but I think 
you don't see, like you said, you don't really see black people in these positions, so you're not gonna. So let me give. So let me give you this. Let me give you this cynical position, Lucas. You're mm. very, very polite and good in your answer. Like me, your dad plays scrum half. Yeah. And your dad was very kind. I'm three years older than your dad, and he was very kind and said that I inspired him to play scrum half at mm. school, which is great because I've always had a, a saying: you can't be what you can't see. Mm. You've got to see people like you being successful. Yeah. Now, the cynical, the cynical position, and I know this because I, I do a lot of talking about this. It's all about unconscious bias. We all, we all have unconscious bias. People look at me, they look at you, and what do they see? They see a young black man, they see an old black man. Mm. And when I was playing rugby as a young black man, no one, the selectors, the coaches, they couldn't see someone that looked like me playing mm. scrum half. As you said, the people that looked like me were out in the backs, you know, the wingers, yeah. the fullbacks. Uh, the centres, or they were the big fours, but they were never ever the scrum halves. Yeah. And so I've had to challenge people to think again, because I'm good. The other thing about it, Luke, it's been quite blunt, is that there was a time, and even now one or two people believe this, we black guys aren't intelligent enough to play scrum yeah. half and call it. Yeah. Now, I like proving people wrong. I've spent my life proving people wrong. Yeah. Um, and that's what we have to do. You'll hear people say, you can't do this. And mm. I say, yes, I can. And I'm going to prove to you that I can. So, so put bluntly, I don't think, you know, people say, oh, people, you know, it must be racist. It's not racism. Mm -mm. It's unconscious bias. And that's a subtle difference. Yeah. So it needs people like you and me and your dad and others to keep in a polite way, pushing back and proving to people that A, we're good enough. Mm. B, we're, we're intelligent enough. And C, we can do it. Yeah, 100%. Did that, did that make um, sense? Yeah, definitely. And I've and these are things that we like. I've I've experienced the same thing, and I'm sure many black people in e almost every sport can say that they've experienced very similar things all over the place. So, I think, like you said, it's like we've got to prove that we can do these things and because we can. But we're not. We're no different, you know. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, it's interesting. And on on the race thing, then. So, when you were younger and growing up, how much of a factor was that for you in rugby especially in rugby um but being a young going to these colleges and things like that was it did you experience a lot of racism on the sidelines were people giving you things on all people on other teams even your teammates so so in terms of the, the racism and i'm going to say a subtle difference between the racism and the yeah. unconscious bias and the unconscious i had unconscious bias against me every day mm. i had racism against me sometimes not from my teammates, because one of the good things about rugby, and you know, you know, your teammates and you put your body on the line for them and they put their yeah. body on the line for you. And, you know, there's a bond and you work hard together. So there was the, the banter, the unconscious bias, but there wasn't the racism. But some of the other teams I played, Lucas, there was some terrible racism. Yeah. People calling me the most awful names, other players, but I knew why they were doing it. They were doing it to put me off my game because you know mm. if you put the scrum half off, yeah, you destroy the team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I would just rise above it, smile at them. You know, I had my I had my way of getting them back, but yeah. I couldn't be wound up by them because on a personal level, they're winning because mm. I'm going to behave the way they want me to behave. Yeah. And on a team's level, they're winning because they put one of the playmakers off. Yeah. So it, it never really threw you off or made you think twice about playing or anything like that. It was always no. Uh, just no. I've I've been fiercely competitive, and I, I've always when people say to me you can't do that, Floyd, 
or you're not good enough. I like to prove them wrong. Yeah. Because I've always known, I've always known that I'm good enough. Here's one for you. Um, when I was playing at Saracens, when I started in 1980, you know, Saracens were a big team, but out of the big teams, we were one of the weaker ones and we were losing okay. most matches. By the time I finished, my last game for Saracens, if we'd have beaten Wasps, we would have won what is now called the Premiership. You know, we, mm. back in the day, we called it Division One, the top league. Um, and we we were theoretically, we, we'd just been promoted. We were meant to be one of the favourites to go down. You know, we'd beaten Harlequins. We drew with Gloucester. We'd beaten all of these teams. And suddenly, Saracens were playing Wasp yeah. with the winner winning. And Wasp, Wasp won, and they deserved to beat us. But mm. that's a great position to be in. From being one of the weakest senior teams to being one of the strongest yeah, senior yeah, teams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and all of that came under my leadership. Yeah. Now, when I retired, so many people from the press and elsewhere said Floyd should have played for England, which is nice of them. Mm. I've always known that. But they should have been saying that five or six years previously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that's kind of goes with what we were saying about the, you know, un, um, not, not racism, but just... The, the unconscious bias. Unconscious bias and not really recognising that you can do it and I don't know maybe they might have been afraid of the of representing black people at the time in rugby well, well, sure. I mean going back going back to the racism just I'll give you one or two simple examples and yeah um I'm going to use language which people might think is offensive but Lucas mm. people have to know what was said to me yeah definitely. I'll give you I'm going to give you two examples when I was um captain of Saracens and we went out and I'm not going to tell you which team but it's a big team in the west country Okay. And you know your rugby, so there's only yeah. three or four of them. Yeah. And I led, I led my team out. And, and you know, people think that football in the 80s had the monkey chance. No one else. Rugby had the monkey chance. I had people chanting at me, spitting at me, throwing things at me. Mm. Um, really awful things. But the comment that I remembered actually wasn't a nasty comment. Someone shouts out, gosh, there were three of them. In other words, Saracens had the temerity to select three black players. Yeah. And what I say is, well done, Saracens. Yeah. Because Saracens always were brave to make me, a young black man, their captain. Again, Lucas, I was the first black captain of a major rugby team. Yeah. Another example I'm going to give you in terms so that you can't turn that racism, that was unconscious bias. Just people, yeah. although, although there were some racist attitudes and chanting. When, now you will know this, you know, you go for your university. You play in the first team for the first time. You, you drink something that's hopefully not too bad in the evening yeah. and, you, and you sing a song. Yeah, yeah. It still happens. It still you happens. You know, I, I got into the Bow Road team. Not many freshers got in because it was such a, it's a full of international athletes. But yeah, I yeah. got in after three or four weeks um, and I was told to sing a song. Now, everybody else could choose the song, Lucas, mm. but I was told... That I had, and I put this in my book. I was told I had to sing the song Sambo Was a Lazy Coon, which you and I know is a shocking, yeah. shocking. It's so hurtful and rude and racist. But here's the thing those people, my teammates, they weren't racist. Mm. It was their own unconscious bias. They just didn't. And the, la and the language, Lucas, that was accepted back then, that's totally not accepted now. 100%. And in my book, I, I tell that story in my book, I've had so many of my old college mates contact me and apologise. Yeah. I said, Floyd, we just didn't realise we didn't think. Yeah. And I think that's that's the thing, like, people didn't realise at the time that even, even though they weren't, they weren't saying it to be rude or necessarily horrible, they just didn't realise. And that's almost 
the saddest part of it that it was so un, un like you can't you can't necessarily explain to people that they're doing something wrong if they don't even realize that they're doing something wrong and it takes so here's so here's the thing and and lucas you're actually right about that yeah you see again you've got me um i do a lot of talks now on unconscious bias so mm. on i was on the phone yesterday i've got surrey county cricket club glamorgan county cricket club Leicester County, they're all trying to get me to go up and talk to their players and coaches. I go into many schools, I go into companies and banks, and I talk to them all about the challenges that people like us have had. But actually, people think that, you know, it's really from me and your dad's generation and our mm. parents coming from the Caribbean, you know, the Windrush yeah. generation. Yeah. And I have to remind them of two things. There have been black people in England for over a thousand years. Yeah. I'm now down in West Cornwall, you know, where my wife used to live, as you know, um, her family from. And St. Michael's Mount, which is a big, famous landmark, two miles from me. The Phoenicians, a thousand years ago, used to sail in and bring trade. Now, the Phoenicians were from Africa, darker-skinned people, and yeah. some of them stayed. So there's been this and that. that. The other thing about um, why, why is it that it's harder for people like me and you, darker-skinned people, the bottom line is you've got five or 600 years of history of slavery and the empire. And the empire was all about English people going to these far-flung places where people were darker skinned and basically taking all that they had, you know, taking their goods, taking their wealth, taking them and making them slaves. Mm -hmm. And so in, in the psyche for hundreds of years, the darker your skin, the lower your place in society. Yeah. And it's only now that my generation, your dad's generation, and your generation, and my son's generation, we are getting the academic success that you need to open doors. We are becoming successful. We are having a voice. Is this yeah. all making sense? Yeah, definitely. And it's good. good. It's obviously very good that that's happening now. Um, it's obviously, it's a shame that, it's taken so long, but I think it goes back to the point you're making earlier that we have to constantly push back at the people's almost with the attitudes that you can't do this and you're you should be doing that instead. That you have to con constantly push back and you get these things now. We get the education and we get the opportunities that we wouldn't have had a long time ago or not even that long ago. Um, so. You know, Lucas, you're actually right about that. You're absolutely right about that. And sorry to yeah. interject. You know, I'm a headmaster. I'm always interjecting. Yeah, okay. But the important thing is, and this is important, and I think me and your dad have both got a similar approach to this. And I know that our approach works. And that is, you must always push back. You must always call it out when you see things that are wrong. Mm. But, and this is important, it's how you do it. Yeah. If I do it in a very aggressive way, I'm reinforcing people's views on exactly. me being an angry, aggressive black man. Yeah, exactly. If I do it in a very calm, articulate way, A, I surprise them. Yeah. And B, I'm probably going to win them over. Yeah, definitely. And that's something that I think a lot of people my age would... This is part of the reason why I wanted you on here, Floyd, because I think a lot of people my age who don't necessarily know how to do that can learn from people like you, people in positions where they've gone through all of these hardships and kind of come out on the other side by doing it the right way and not not obviously it's very difficult not to get angry and get frustrated and get annoyed but the more you kind of um, calm yourself and be articulate like you said you just get so much further 
And I think that's, like I said, that's why I wanted you on there because people can listen to that and people can take inspiration from that. You know, young black people, not just rugby players, athletes, not even just athletes, just anyone, you know, can learn from your life, your story that you put in the book and you know, like take things from it. And I think it's like that, that's the way forward, really. Just being articulate. Well, that's, that's, you know, Lucas, that's very kind of you to say that. And it's also yeah. very important you say that because I know I'm really hopeful for the future mm. because your generation, you know, my sons, you know, you're the same age as my boys. Um, mm. So that generation Z and generation alpha, which are the teenagers still yeah, in school. Yeah, even younger. Yeah. You guys are the ones leading this change for equality. And it's not just equality when it comes to diversity and race. It's mm. also equality for sexual orientation, for mm. people with physical disabilities, for gender. And it's great, but there is a but here. I think because of a lack of experience, a lot of the younger people, they want change, fantastic. They want change to happen now, fantastic. And when it doesn't happen, they get angry. Yeah. When you get angry, you lose your audience. Yeah, definitely. And it almost knocks you back a couple of steps, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's the it's the... When it doesn't happen, it is you take it on the chin and you keep pushing and keep fighting for it. Um, yeah, just, I mean, as I say in my book, there, I've had so many setbacks. And when you have a setback, you've got two options. You know, you're going to be angry and you're going to sulk. And if you do that, you're reinforcing some people's perceptions about you. Or you bounce yourself, pick yourself up, dust yourself down, and you keep moving forward and prove that you can do the job. And I know that is the way to go. Look, I've been incredibly lucky, but also successful in my life. I'm, I was the first black teacher at St. Paul's, one of the great public schools in the country. Mm. I've been headmaster of four prep schools, private prep schools. Yeah. A black man, headmaster of private yeah. prep schools. So I've had a really, really um, fantastic teaching and rugby career. And I think a lot of it's down to my ability as a teacher, as a rugby player, but also a lot of it's down to my ability as a human being to be kind, to be respectful, to be polite, but never ever to back down. Yeah. And it's getting that balance. Would you would you say that a lot of those, you know, because you, you've taken your success from rugby into teaching and education, would you say that you've learned a lot of your resilience from rugby or would you say that it's kind of just been with you the whole way through from like, like from your book, it's been from the start of your life pretty much all the way Yeah, through. that's a great question. I mean, the resilience has always been there because a lot of the people listening to this might not know, Lucas, I know you know. I was in care. I was I was uh, looked after child, which meant that I wasn't living at home. Mm. I was taken into care from a very early age and I spent, I, I didn't live at home with parents for that long. Mm. And when you're out of the family situation in a care home with other youngsters, some of them really tough, you learn to keep your head down and to be resilient. Yeah, because there are going to be lots of setbacks. You've got to just pick yourself up and carry on. And I learned resistance from my time there, which I then took into rugby and yeah. being a black scrum, black scrum half, trying to make my way in the game and initially being sort of overlooked. And then people thinking, actually, he can do it. He can play. Mm. You know, you've just got to keep pushing that, keep proving to people. And your dad would have said this to you. I know this for a fact, Lucas. Your dad would have said this to you. <laughs> and I've said the same to my boys. There were times... I couldn't be just as good as other people. So I'm up against another scrum half yeah. who happens to be white. Yeah. I can't be just as good because he's going yeah, to get slapped. Be... I've got to be so much better. Mm. So in all the things that I've done, I've gone out there to prove to people that I am the best by far. Yeah. And if I'm the best by far, I might get a chance. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm not the best by far. I'm not going to be selected. Definitely. Uh, that is and, definitely and, something my dad says. And there's no point getting upset about it. That is just a fact. Definitely. Yes. It goes across all, like everything in life, not just in sport, you know. Yeah. Like you have to be better than the person next to you. And if you're in a situation like you were back then, and even people now, that you're not what people are used to, you almost have to be the best. And then that step even better just to prove to them, you know, I can stand yeah. out and I'm not just good, I'm very good. Let me give an example. So my final year at school. So I was uh, at Kingsbury High School with your dad. I was captain of the school team, captain of the county team, um, and the Middlesex County was a strong county. Uh, and we had a lot of county matches in the autumn, mm. and we won most of them. But what they used to do is at Christmas, because Middlesex being a big county, had a lot of their good rugby boys were boarding schools, and mm. they would come home for Christmas. They would then have another round of, of county trials for the uh, springtime games and the games in January and February were basically um, the divisional trial matches. Mm. In the um, so I was captain of Middlesex and then we had these Christmas trials. Who was I up against? The captain of Harrow School. Okay. Okay. So you know they select the squad for these matches. Yeah. The captain of Harrow, scrum half, white scrum half. He gets in as number one. I get in as number two. The first game we played was against Eastern Counties. Mm. Ben Young's Ben Young's dad, Nick Young's, okay. good scrum half, yeah, good yeah. scrum half, was playing for Eastern Counties, and the Harrow captain was playing for Middlesex, and of course, captain. I was on the bench, and we're talking about the days when you didn't come off the bench unless there was an injury. Yeah, and I sat through this whole match watching uh, Ben Young's dad destroy um, the guy that that was playing where I should have been playing. Yeah. And I couldn't get on at all because they didn't have yeah. substitutions. It was only if you're really injured. The selectors realised their mistake. The second game, they put me in and I played all the other county matches. Wow. But, because I, but because I didn't play against Nick Youngs, mm. remember I didn't play against him yeah, at yeah. all, he always went through as number one. As we, yeah. we went through the division to the, count, the final tri, England final trial together, but he was always the number one because I never had the opportunity to, yeah, play, against to him. play against him. Yeah. And I didn't because a white scrum half from Harrow's school was was put in was put in me. front of you, and yeah. it's you you the story could have been very different if you were up against him. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yep. But you even then, like the, even then, the challenge is even if I'd have got the better of yeah. um, Nick Youngs, yeah, would the selectors have been brave enough? Now I always it's interesting because I did go through all the way. Through through to the England final trial and I got myself injured before the final trial mm. um, but even then I would have been on the bench so I wouldn't yeah. have been uh, uh, Nick Young's played and he actually played for England schools that year Yeah. and the guy that then replaced me in the England final trial because I couldn't I couldn't be part of it went through as the reserve scrum half so there was a strong chance that I could have been in the England yeah. school even then but look that's rugby you get injured and these things happen yeah exactly I can tell you about injuries for days and that I've had but yeah. it's interesting. I was going to say, just to kind of close it off a bit, I'm going to have you back on as well to talk about loads of things because this conversation could just go on forever. And I was just going to ask, do you feel like rug your experience in rugby has defined you or would you say that it's not rugby, it's kind of just how life has gone for you that's kind of made yeah, you come out how you question. are Lucas, that is a great question. I think rugby is definitely part of the thing that's defined me. Mm. But what's defined me was um, 
being my parents coming over um, to Jamaica from Jamaica in 1956. So they were part of the Windrush generation. But my mum and dad divorced before I was one. So mm. I've never seen my mum. And sadly, she died back in the 1990s. So, so I've never ever, I have no image of my mum in my mind at all. But I know that I've got some of her qualities. I didn't have my mm. dad's qualities. He wasn't a nice mm. man. But living in that abusive family situation yeah. helped define me. Living in care helped define me. Yeah. Um, the challenges in rugby helped define me. But also, we haven't even touched on today the challenges in education. No, yeah. and, and teaching and some of the challenges. But all of these things helped define me to be the person I am. And I think... One of the most important things that I've always wanted to do, Lucas, is to make sure that my boys and everybody else understand whatever your start in life, whatever your background, education is the key. Because there's no question, in today's society, if you get yourself a good academic education, uh, it opens doors for you. Mm -hmm. Irrespective of my rugby, it was my education that opened the doors for me. Yeah. There's no question about that. Because if you hadn't gone to the colleges and things like that, you wouldn't have even been playing the rugby that you were playing. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It's very good. Like it's, it's been great to talk to you. Um, I feel like people listening will take a lot from it. Not just It's not even just the younger Black people out there. I think everyone can kind of learn something from your story and what you've been through. And just, if they can't take anything from it, at least they can understand you know, your story and what people do go through. So I think it's been a pleasure to have you on and like I said, I would love to have you back. I think we could talk. Like I said, this conversation could have gone on for hours, and we could definitely talk. Lucas, about many that, that's very kind of you. And if I can, if I could leave one message for the audience that potentially going to you listen, do, to yeah. and that is, you've heard me talk talk about the education. I'm a headmaster, retired headmaster, yeah. so I'm going to talk about that. The yeah. other thing I want people to do is they mustn't be afraid to have the difficult conversations with other people. So mm. many of my white friends, Lucas, you know, in the last two or three years, particularly since the murder of George Floyd, mm. they want to get involved in the conversation. They want to see how they can help, but they don't know how to start the conversation yeah. because they don't want to embarrass themselves. They don't want to say the wrong things. Definitely. I'm saying, you're my friend. You're not going to embarrass yourself. If you say something that's wrong, you haven't done it deliberately, and I'll just politely correct you. Yeah. But people must have the conversations because if we have the conversations we just have a better understanding of each other exactly i completely agree with that i think that's a great message and i think everyone listening can take that from it as well like you know i've got many lot a lot of white friends and i think i could say the same thing to them like i'd, I'd love to have conversations like that with them i don't want people to hold back because that's what that's almost part of the problem you don't get the full story if you hold back and you need the full story you need to understand the worst parts of it to get the best out of it, you know? Correct, correct. Yeah. And it's a slight plug, if people don't want to buy my book, and I totally understand if they <laughs> don't, there's a 15-minute documentary, Sky Sports. I mean, I've been very lucky. So Black History Month last year, Sky Sports did a documentary for me. So if people want to sort of just have a look, just to get a bit more of an understanding about what I stand for and how I'm trying to make the world a better place for everyone. Please do go and watch that. I've seen it and it's very, very good watch. Thank you very much, Floyd, for being on. Um, and everyone listening, I'm sure I'll, well, I'll be back probably next week for with another podcast. So I'll see you then. Cheers, Floyd. Hey, no problem. Speak to you soon, Lucas. Bye. Bye.